It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Clearwater, Florida, February 1980. The Phillies have returned for another spring training at the Carpenter Complex. After three consecutive trips to the National League Championship Series and three consecutive losses, the Phillies finished fourth in National League East play last year and saw their cross-state rivals, the Pittsburgh Pirates, win it all. The previous year's injury-filled disappointment was in the rearview mirror as the Phillies arrived in camp, but its consequences were unavoidable. Dallas Green, the bellowing man's man manager, took over on an interim basis in 1979 after the firing of longtime manager Danny Ozark. Green's role was meant to be minor. He was pegged as an evaluator, someone to diagnose the team's perceived leadership issues from the inside. He was not supposed to be a long-term solution. But in the offseason, before that 1980 season, that decision was changed. With the backing of President Ruley Carpenter and General Manager Paul Owens, Green was retained as the Phillies skipper. Big D was going to lead the Phillies for the entire 1980 season and see if he could get anything more out of a group of aging veterans whose championship window only left a slight crack of space for Light to still get in. And, no surprise, he was going to do it his way. That was obvious. After years of an easygoing players manager in Danny Ozark, players like Larry Boa knew they were facing a new challenge. The two personalities between Dallas and, and Danny were like night and day, so it was an adjustment. But I did know that he, you know, even as farm director, that he wanted to win. When the Phillies arrived at camp, they looked up at the familiar, usually unchanging clubhouse in Clearwater. Dallas wanted to send a message. He wanted to catch the players off guard. So up on the wall, visible for all to see, was a sign with a little league-like message that produced eye rolls for many, but spelled out Dallas's philosophy for the season. We, not I. Welcome back to Philly's Throwbacks, presented by Toyota. This is episode two of our five-part series on the 1980 Phillies. I'm your host, Scott Palmer. In episode one, we traveled through the 1970s as Paul Owens, Ruley Carpenter, and Dallas Green built a winning baseball club from the ground up. Now, with homegrown talent at the end of its prime, Dallas was in charge, and things were about to change. Well, it's generally in spring training, the atmosphere is totally different because there's no pressure. 
Phillies PR director, Larry Shank. But Dallas hung signs in the clubhouse, big letters, we not I, you know, that kind of thing. And it was when you get to, to a veteran state and they were in the clubhouse there. And as you, the season becomes, it's almost like a game of war on the field. And it's, it's, it's a battle. And I don't, I don't get that feeling anymore. <laughs> you know, Maddox and Boa didn't like Dallas and, and Luzinski was benched, you know. Dallas didn't give a damn. He played whoever he thought he would do. He played some rookies, you know. Several Phillies didn't like Dallas's managerial style to begin with. They knew him from the minors and had gotten a taste of him in the majors last year. When spring training featured what they saw as a high school rah-rah nonsense for professional baseball players, the resentment only grew. And then he brought in... Uh... Dallas Green, who was going to change all of us. So he was just going to beat it into us that we were, you know, we were walking around, even though we were winning every year, we were walking around like or, or what everybody thought was, oh, they're, they're just running a country club and these guys aren't passionate about it. And, and, and we all resented that. We were loose. We were confident. We knew how good we were. But, you know, that thing was spread all through the media and it came from Dallas. And, but Dallas came in with, oh, no, I'm going to show them. And, you know, he really ticked a lot of guys off early on. As we've said earlier, they knew that the time's running out for them. They better win pretty soon. But now they want to fight the manager, too. They weren't real crazy about him. And they weren't real crazy about the discipline that he imposed and the way that he would he would confront them and he would yell at them. And, uh, and he would yell at the big boys because the big boys – were the kids that he used to yell at and discipline when they were just babies in the minor league system. And now they were the big boys and they were the, uh, they were the veterans. They were the guys that were the fo the face of this franchise. And he wasn't afraid of them. And he knew that the front office really had his back, that he wasn't going anywhere. So it was up to him to get it done or he would move on and do something else in his career. But the time was now and 1980 was the time to get it done. Many Phillies veterans like Greg Luzinski and Mike Schmidt had a good idea of what style Dallas would bring to the ball club for a full season. Dallas was my first uh, manager in Huron, South Dakota in 1968. So I had a lot of experience with his tirades and he used to sit us down on the bench after the game, all the whole team down there and Huron and we used to sit there and if a mosquito landed on your arm, which there were plenty of them there, and you went to swat it, he'd, he'd make sure you didn't do that again. You know, it was like, pay attention to me. I don't want you swatting flies or mosquitoes. You know, he was a big guy. Oh, he was really intimidating as a figure. I think he loved all his players. There's no question about that. Well, I knew Dallas from the minor leagues. I negotiated my little meaningless contracts with Dallas Green. I mean, $500 a year one time and then we got a raise raised to seven hundred dollars and then <laughs> you know the, you basically played for peanuts back back in the day uh you know when you were playing in the minor leagues uh, so you know i could say i knew of him i didn't really know him like i i knew him later on in life but he uh you know man's man he was uh, uh you know big kind of a john wayne like guy um he he goes down as one of the great administrators and managers in baseball history. Every move by Dallas was calculated. Every blow up, confrontation, and discipline was done in order to keep the players uncomfortable and competitive. 
It came from a caring place. Still, it didn't create the most welcoming clubhouse environment. There's a lot of tension, uh, tremendous amount of tension, but Dallas didn't care. See, that was the whole point. Uh, he understood the ones that whose buttons he needed to push. Uh, he, he knew the ones that would be okay, and he knew the ones that, in his opinion, he needed to do some things with. So, yes, he did uh, do some things with Booney, and Bob Boone was, is, he's one of the smartest, brightest, most well-informed human beings I've ever been around, but he was stubborn, and he'll admit that now. Bull was very stubborn. Greg was very stubborn. Greg, uh, Gary Maddox was very stubborn. Bo was rockhead at times. They wanted to do it their way. The new style of leadership was tough. Spring training was a rude wake-up call for a team that had seemed to become complacent and policed itself. Still, Dallas didn't back down from his hard-nosed tactics. Some players, like Greg Luzinski, understood that the tough guy act had a purpose. It's not the question of he wanted their respect. It was the question that he was trying to get the most out of his players. Uh, and that was his way of, of going about a lot of things. He was a fundamental guy. Utility player, Del Unser. And, hey, we were going to go out there and do our cutoffs and rundowns. I don't care how many years you guys had in the big leagues. This is the way we're going to do it. And boom, boom, boom. At the same time, Dallas wanted to create an open line of communication with his players. He insisted to the clubhouse that his door would always be open to chat. That open-door policy remained in place when the spring training season ended and the games began to count. At the end of March, the Phillies packed up and headed north to Veterans Stadium in South Philadelphia to open the 1980 season against the Montreal Expos. The three-game series would be the first of several matchups against a talented rival north of the border. Getting off to a good start against this club on the rise was crucial. It was Luzinski who delivered in the very first inning. The 2-2 pitch. Swing a long drive. Deep left field. Out of hell. Home run the ball. As Luzinski rounded third base, he smacked the hand of third base coach Lee Elia and fired his fist into the air in excitement. He went into the dugout to a standing ovation that didn't stop until he went up the stairs to tip his hat. It was a big show of emotion for the usually stoic bull. And there was a reason for it. In the 1979 season, Luzinski was one of a few players who struggled with injuries. The slugger hit only 18 homers and batted 252. He was 25 pounds overweight, and he was mentioned in trade talks, as some speculated that even at age 29, the best years of his career were over. Luzinski responded by going on a strict diet and bringing his weight down from 238 to 215. He worked hard on his batting stroke and his conditioning. The fierce defender of Danny Ozark sucked up his pride and worked hard with Dallas Green in spring training. His effort was obvious. Green himself in Clearwater told reporters, I'm willing to bet my house. The Bull has a great, great season. Luzinski's hard work paid off, and his first inning three-run shot led to an opening day 6-3 victory. The Phillies won two of three against Montreal to begin the season, a start they needed against a good Expos team. 
and without major injuries to starters, the opening day lineup featured a talented group of veterans around the diamond. Pitching a complete game to open the season was lefty Steve Carlton. At catcher was Bob Boone. First base, Pete Rose. Second base, Manny Trio. Mike Schmidt at third, and Larry Boa at shortstop. In left field was Greg the Bull Luzinski. In center, the Secretary of Defense, Gary Maddox. And in right was Shake and Bake, Bake McBride. No eyebrows were raised by this solid lineup on opening day that featured several players who were the best in the league at their positions. But as the season went on, seemingly safe starting jobs just weren't so safe anymore. Under Danny Ozark, the veterans went out and played just about every day. It was his philosophy, his players said, that the team would win or lose with its big horses running the show. That changed under Dallas Green. Green wasn't afraid to sit a player who wasn't showing enough hustle, who was struggling at the plate, or simply needed extra motivation. Nobody likes it, but it was a you know way of life. Left fielder Greg Luzinski. You know we had four or five of those guys come up from the minor leagues uh, throughout the year and do a tremendous job for us. And it takes sometimes a lot more than twenty-five people. You know, you look to your minor league system, and ours is a very strong minor league system. And you got to give credit to those guys. They they really helped their ball club. Bob Boone was a veteran who saw the positive impact. The sturdy catcher from Stanford was battling knee injuries and not producing his regular numbers at the plate. He took benchings on the chin. It wasn't the first time, though, he was forced to sit in his career. It didn't bother me. You know, it had happened a few years earlier when, you know, I couldn't catch Steve Carlton. Carlton, who didn't like Boone's game-calling style, preferred to work with catcher Tim McCarver and insisted on it for a period in the 70s. And for me, I took it as, that's fine, because I had caught every game for six years or whatever it was. There's nothing I can do about this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually use this as a relaxed time. Let me see if this helps me. And uh, so that never, that never really bothered me at all. And then eventually, I think Lefty, Lefty came around and after watching me play, said, hey, he, this guy's a pretty good catcher. Maybe I want him to throw to me. So I didn't, I didn't mind it. I didn't take it as a slap in the face at all. The changes caused a stir in the clubhouse. But Green stuck to his guns and provided much-needed opportunities for a bevy of young players on the Philly squad. They didn't disappoint. Fly ball, right field. Dropping quickly is a fair foul, a fair ball. Extra bases. And Moreland's in the second with a double. And the Phillies lead it 3-2 on Keith Moreland's pinch hit double down the right field line. Smith. Now, Brett threw the ball too soon. He was afraid of Lonnie Smith's speed. Keith Moreland filled in for Bob Boone at catcher. The speedy Lonnie Smith saw time in left and center, replacing both Luzinski and Maddox. Bench additions George Vukovic and Luis Aguayo got reps as well, while utility veterans like Del Unser, Greg Gross, and John Vukovic rounded out a bench that saw regular work. Leaders on the team like Mike Schmidt, right away saw the difference these players could make with regular playing time. That's a pretty strong bench right there, Lonnie Smith, Keith Moreland, uh, Del Unser. In some cases, like with Gary Martin or Lonnie Smith, they played regular on our team against left-handed pitching. 
good timing, you know, when you're when you're a championship team, guys coming off the bench and, and doing something uh, are a major part of the championship. Here's the thing with Dallas, he wasn't a dope either, but he felt he could do some things in left field, center field, and behind the plate. And those were a couple places that he did do some things. And the things that the thing that turned out the best about that, in my opinion, were the guys like Moreland and Lonnie Smith and Dell Unser. The bench guys, they got a chance to play in meaningful games in the month of September. And by meaningful games, I mean when the, the game is on the line and you need to produce and have to do something to win because you're trying to win a pennant at that time or a division. And those guys, when the, when the playoffs started, it wasn't like you were trying to ask guys to do things that hadn't played in two months or had only gotten a few at-bats. Through much of the season's first half, the Phillies remained in striking distance in the NL East, but they hardly ever had sole control of first place. Part of it had to do with yet another round of injuries that plagued key members of this ball club. In 1979, Bob Boone was enjoying the best season of his career when a collision at the plate in a September game versus the Mets at Shea Stadium ended his year prematurely and gave him a devastating knee injury. He spent the entire season working out at the vet, arriving at the park at 5 a.m. every day for grueling workouts. After that, he'd go to the YMCA and swim for a bit to strengthen his surgically repaired knee. The goal was a quicker than usual healing process in order to play on opening day. It worked. When the 1980 season began, the Iron Man behind the plate was still dealing with the effects of that injury. Few fans knew the extent of his pain, causing Boone to hear some boos as he struggled at times in the regular season. Even fewer knew the extreme measures he took to play in each game. If you saw what I had to do every day, I would be a, there's a machine that had to put your leg in a big sleeve and it pumps, uh, it puts pressure on it and it pumps all of the swelling out. And I'd use that every day. But I was on a, I was on the table every day for three 50-minute sessions. And, and that would get, that would loosen me up enough where I could function, where I could squat down. Because when I went to the park, I couldn't squat. And I had to learn. I had to learn how to catch on my by putting my weight on the right side. Boone created a workout program with Gus Heffling, the former Eagles coach who trained quarterback Roman Gabriel and became the Phillies' fitness instructor. Heffling had already worked wonders with Steve Carlton's body, helping him establish himself as one of the best pitchers in the game. With Boone, he put together a meticulous pregame routine. Couldn't I couldn't squat down. 15 minutes before the game started. I, I couldn't, I couldn't bend it. And so we would go into the training room and there's a, a, um, universal machine. I don't know if people have done it where you, where you, you stack weights behind you and you extend your legs. We would go in there and Gus would take all the weight off the back. This is very painful, but I'd get in the seat, push the seat all the way back and Gus would get on the uh, machine and he would extend it. The, the weight part and he would push it down to force my leg to bend and and just knock the adhesions out of it and then i'd move the seat up a notch and he'd do it again <laughs> and if we do that it would take about it might take him about 10 minutes and it's very painful but it would actually break up the adhesions so as soon as i got done with that i could squat and that's what i needed to play in every game that year 
On top of his pain, Boone was also caught up in the middle of an MLB firestorm early in the season. With the new concept of free agency still causing contention, players went on strike at the end of spring training, canceling the preseason's final eight days. They threatened to strike again if a new deal that, in essence, would grant players more independence wasn't reached by May 23rd. Boone, as the president of the National League's Players Association, was caught in the middle of the players, the owners, and the media, all looking for answers on whether the 1980 season would end before it truly began. It took a toll on the Stanford psychology major. So I was always involved in the strikes with my face out there every day, coming out of a meeting, talking about it. It was a pain in the rear. I mean, I spent a lot of time doing that and was very involved in it. And when we first came back after that, that little shutdown, boy, when my face, when my helmet came out of, the, out of that dugout, all you heard is booing. And, uh, you know, when you get, you, you get used to that, it doesn't affect you other than you, you laugh about it, but uh, nobody likes that to happen. And actually, when I went to California, and threw out so good when I come up to bat, they would they would start saying Boone, and I said, "Yeah, I heard the same thing in Philly, except they left the N E off." An agreement was reached before the established deadline. The deal settled most disputes while pushing the free agency debate to be further negotiated in 1981. You might remember that didn't go very well, resulting in a strike that altered the entire season structure in 1981. But this season is just about 1980, which continued without cancellation, letting Boone focus solely on his troubling knee. Injuries also brought down Luzinski. After pumping his fist on opening day, the bull ended up on the disabled list from early July until late August. Lockdown closer Tug McGraw missed a great deal of the first half of the season with an elbow injury. There wasn't much information on how McGraw got injured, but relief pitcher Ron Reed saw it all firsthand. Tug enjoyed going out in batting practice and, and being an outfielder. He, he chased down fly balls and you know they try to catch he'd catch some behind his back, and he'd turn around and look at the fans and smile at them. You know, it, it, that was Tug. That was just Tug. He came in. Somebody had a line drive for like a base hit. He came running in and he made a little dive on his belly and hooked his glove on his right hand, kind of got caught up on the ground. He partially dislocated his right elbow in batting practice. Thank God it was his right elbow and not his left. I think they came out and said he had tendonitis, but he kind of, he kind of messed up his elbow a little bit, so he had to sit out. Once he got through that, he came back about the All-Star game, and the rest is history from the All-Star game on. I think he only gave up like two or three runs the rest of the year, and he just... Everybody else. Luckily, before Tug's resurgence, the bullpen was in good hands, even without its shining jewel. Dickie Knowles, an occasional spot starter, recorded 45 strikeouts and six saves with a 3.41 ERA in 66 innings. He became legendary for one pitch he threw in Game 4 of the World Series. But, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Warren Brewstar and Kevin Saucier combined for 66 appearances and allowed just 92 hits in 82 and a third innings. Sparky Lyle, the former Yankees All-Star closer and Cy Young Award winner, 
came to the Phillies in a trade with Texas in September. Though ineligible for the playoffs, he gave up just 11 hits in 14 innings over 10 appearances. He was massive for that September push. But working often as the setup man for Tug and the closer when he was out was the reliable Ron Reed. Reed picked up nine saves in McGraw's absence and gave up 88 hits over 91 runs with 54 strikeouts. To this day, Larry Boa considers him the most underrated piece of the 1980 Phillies. Well, I think a lot of our players feel that way about him, felt that way about him. He was the guy, he would bridge the gap, you know. He would pitch two innings and then get the ball to Tug, and then maybe the next day Tug would pitch two innings and Reed would pitch an inning. So he was, he was he had a rubber arm, and he, he never, ever turned the ball down. But without him and the bullpen down there, we don't win the World Series. I mean, him and Tug were the tandem that we could rely on them every single night. Ron Reed with a record of 7-5 and five on the regular season. Track three, Paul Leonard out looking, and Reed turns him away. We'll go to the bottom of the ninth inning with a score tied at 3-3. Tug got all the saves. But Ron Reed was a guy that kept the game close or kept us in the lead to get to Tug McGraw. So I think he was uh, really un- under undervalued, I think. I think people took him for granted a lot of the time. Reed is quick to deflect the credit to catcher Bob Boone, who he never shook off after learning his lesson early in his career. But Boone himself agrees. Reed anchored the Phillies through some tough times early in that season. You know, Tug gets all the credit for it. And Tug was great, no question. But Ron Reed is the guy that carried us through that. I mean, Ron Reed, you talk about innings pitched, and you talk about every single day he would be out there. And he was such a big factor for us. Starting pitcher Larry Christensen also went down with an injury that kept him out from May to July. It all started by giving his team a lift at the plate. Remember in Houston, I hit a bomb three-run home run at the Ast- in the Astrodome off of Joe Necro in 1980, um, way out in left field. And and then after that game, my elbow was like a grapefruit. I, you know, and they said, man, you know, you're, we got to shut you down. And then I had surgery and went home to Washington State for a while and and, and I rehabbed out there, and I was, I was throwing within like a month, though. I mean, that's almost impossible. But I, was, I pushed myself, and I came back. And, um, and in July, maybe they weren't even counting on me. Remember, Bob Walk took over and did pre, you know, pitch pretty well in August, pitching my way onto the roster and ended up that year 5-1, and one, relief, and then into the rotation. Along with Christensen, the starting staff was held down by homegrown talent like veteran Dick Ruthven and rookie Bob Walk, who came up in Christensen's absence and earned a spot in the rotation. And there you see Bob Walk. He was the Phillies' third selection in the June 1976 secondary phase of the draft. He does have a problem with B with control, and the hitters are going to see a lot of fastballs. He struck him out. Good fastball. Randy Lurch made 22 starts, while Nino Espinosa and Dan Larson contributed for injured teammates. But leading the way for this young staff was the ace of all aces, the future Hall of Famer, Steve Carlton. Looking at Steve, of course, 24-9 on the year, probably the Cy Young Award winner in the National League this year. Look him out. 
Bouncing ball, Trio to his right, has it, in time. So it's three up, three down. Blood pile. Strikeout number five for Carlton. Phillies lead two to nothing. Steve Carlton captured the imagination and affection of the fans like no Philadelphia sports figure before. The love affair was achieved with style and brilliance. Steve Carlton was a great pitcher in St. Louis. He came to the Phillies in a deal for Rick Wise that shocked both cities. When the season ended, he had won 27 ball games. He would lead the National League in strikeouts, innings pitch, earned run average. And when the season ended, Steve Carlton, by unanimous vote of the nation's sports writers, won the coveted Cy Young Award, emblematic of the best pitcher in the National League. Young pitchers learned a lot from Carlton. September call-up Marty Bystrom was amazed by his work ethic and adopted Lefty's training regiment with Gus Heffling after seeing how much it worked for both his stamina and ability. He had his way of doing things, which was pretty much different than everybody else, and the way they wanted you to do things from a training perspective, conditioning. You know, he was amazing. I mean, the guy was a horse, and he wanted to pitch every four days and go out there and pitch the number of innings that he did, his stamina, and it was just really uh, something to watch going through that, that whole time. And, and, you know, the lefty used to come into the clubhouse the day he was pitching. He said, well, you know what today is? It's wind day. It's wind day. He, he would say that to everybody. Today's wind day. So right away, he's planting the seed. We're winning today. While positivity radiated from Carlton, it wasn't in the manager's office. After losses, the ritual began to form as reporters spent extended periods of time in Green's office listening to him tear apart whoever he thought cost the Phillies a win or didn't show enough effort. Players didn't hear the criticism directly. We read about everything in the paper. Greg Luzinski. And uh, he, he had this big open-door policy, and uh, we actually had a meeting with just the players. And uh, I was on the DL at the time, so... Uh, the team actually asked me to go in there and talk to him about his open door policy and why do we have to read in it, read about what we did wrong the next day in the paper? Why don't you just come to us and tell us and, and talk talk to us? And I went in there and said that to him, and that wasn't an open door for very long. That door shut pretty quick. <laughs> Dear Phillies fans, drive a true winner, the Toyota Camry. The Camry is the best-selling car in America for 18 years. Now that is a championship tradition. Plus, the Camry, with available all-wheel drive, offers a true competitive edge. Contact your local Toyota dealer or visit buyatoyota.com to get yours today. And you could drive off in victory. Toyota. Based on manufacturer estimates, CY 2002 to 2019 sales includes Camry Solera. It was now mid-August. Tension levels in the clubhouse were at an all-time high as the team, openly fighting with its manager, was heading toward the end of the season. The Phillies were three games back of first place in the National League East when they arrived in Pittsburgh for a four-game series against the rival Pirates, ending with a scheduled Sunday doubleheader.
And hey, look, the pirates were good. <laughs> they, you know, pirates are coming off We Are Family, the 79 pirates. To Stargell, a high, deep drive, hit back into deep right center, and it's going to be out of here for a three-run home run. As Stargell hit a patented Willie Stargell home run, he got it up in the air. The pirates won the NL East in 1979, breaking the Philly streak, and went on to overcome a three-games-to-one deficit against the Orioles in the World Series blasting Sister Sledge's We Are Family as their team and city's anthem during the title run. You know Sister Sledge, the vocal group from right here in Philadelphia. The catch, Pittsburgh wins it. Coming from a 3-1 deficit, and there is Willie Stodgell. Just VP. That's right, just named the most valuable player. Man, they were really a good team. They were, you know, they're you're talking Stodgell Parker. Rennie Stennett, Sanguine, and those kind of guys were with that team. So they were, they, you know, they were really, really a good baseball team. The Pirates were just a huge rivalry. They were tough. You know, we, we had some battles over the years with the Pirates. I mean, they were, they were big. They were, and we'd have brawl, brawls at different times. Here he goes. Bench is empty and we'll be have fines and suspensions here. We'd run out there on the field, and holy cow, they were we were pretty big, our guys, but they were huge. The Phillies lost the first two of the series, dropping to five games back in the division before the doubleheader. So we lose again. We lose that first game, and that's when Dallas went off. Green shut the doors to the clubhouse after the game. It usually opened for the media immediately, but the riders were stopped out in the hallway. Dallas gathered the team for a meeting. He kept his head low and looked furious. And then he unloaded on them. He just blasted us. Del Unser. Uh, doesn't matter how good we are or how cool we are or how confident we are, you got to go out there and kick somebody's butt on the field. His big thing was look in the mirror. He closed the doors and nobody was allowed in. And uh, he was yelling so loud that the writers verbatim got every word he said. And they... It was in the paper the next day, and everyone's saying, how'd that happen? Larry Boa. They came in, they asked him what the meeting was about. He says, that's between us and the team. And I heard him say that. And yet, the next day, everything he said was in the paper. So he was screaming pretty loud. And I'm sure that they were out there with their pens and pencils. They got a nice story there. The clubhouse was closed when they got down there. But they could hear it. <laughs> They're standing out in the hallway, and the guys still, you know, laugh about that—that that they could hear, you know, almost every word he was saying in there, and and the things he was saying about them, and that you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, and I'm here, and and you're not getting rid of me like you got rid of the other guy. And then... Dallas wasn't the only one who yelled. In the second game of the doubleheader, another loss. Ron Reed came on to pitch. He was already unhappy with Dallas, but it got worse when Reed let a couple of runners reach base. Dallas had a, had a tendency to walk people, you know, when you got in a jam. Bob Boone. You know, walked this hitter. And we had a lot of bad things happen when we walked that hitter. And uh, I remember one, one of the games in Pittsburgh, Dallas is, Dallas is, you know, he's, he's, I look over there and he gives me four, walking. <laughs> I told now I'm talking to Ron Reed. I'm giving him, hey, we're walking this guy. And Reed gets pissed. I mean, he's just, he's like, no, I'm not. I'm not going to. Finally, Dallas runs out. And I thought they were going to get the fight on the mound. 
about walking this guy because we really had, had a lot of poor success with that. And uh, I thought Dallas and, and Ron were going to go at it right there on the mound in front of me. They didn't. Instead, they fought later. The one thing Dallas said that kind of set me off, he said, you guys aren't trying and you guys don't want to win. Well, that was a, the worst thing in the world he could have said to that team because that, guy, that bunch of guys right there, that 80 team, they went out every game to, to win. I mean, we, we busted our tails and we really tried to win. And I took it the wrong way, maybe. I don't know, but I jumped up and said, Dallas, that's wrong. And I said a few other things. I said, this team is out there every day busting their britches, trying to win every game they can. There isn't a dog on this team. There wasn't one guy on that team that didn't put that uniform on and go out there to win. I said, why don't you try to help us once in a while instead of chewing us up? Uh, granted, they went out and lost the second game, but that was one of those um, one of the reasons that that, that uh, Dallas was in the manager's role to somehow try to shake them up and try to make them understand that they just can't go through the motions that they're real that they're good and they got great players on this team and a lot of all stars, future Hall of Famers even. But you're not that good that you can just go out and just just show up. So that was uh, that was some afternoon. The Phillies were now six games back from the division lead. They were two weeks from September and demoralized. Even PR director Larry Shank lost his high hopes. You don't make up six games generally that quickly. The one thing everybody wants is a World Series ring, you know, and we thought we had some good shots in 77, 78, and now you're just wondering privately, you know, I may not get a ring. Philadelphia Hall of Fame sports writer Ray Didinger was in Pittsburgh to cover the game for the Daily News. When the paper came out the next morning, Green's quotes were written verbatim in his story. Quotes like, This bleeping game isn't easy. It's tough, especially when you have injuries. But you guys have got your bleeping heads down. You gotta stop being so bleeping cool. Get that through your bleeping heads. If you don't, You'll get so bleeping buried, it ain't going to be get funny. Get the bleep off your asses and just be the way you can be because you're a good bleeping baseball team. But you're not now, and you can't look in the bleeping mirror and tell me you, you tell are. tell me you can do it, but you bleeping give up. If you don't want a bleeping play, get the bleep in that manager's office and bleeping tell me because I don't want a bleeping play you. Didinger finished the story with his own words on the season status. He wrote, The doubleheader loss ended on an appropriate note, with lightning flashing on an eerie horizon, and Boa swinging at and missing an abusive fan on the roof of the dugout. The Phillies are now six games back in the National League East, and this is as good a time as any to order the headstone for the 1980 season. It was true, the Phillies had reached their low point. The same troubles that had plagued them in the playoffs during the 70s were now happening earlier, and a division title seemed out of reach. But the Phillies players did gain something that day in Pittsburgh. Humiliation on the field was a lot, but getting it again in the locker room was something different. It ate at them, lit a fire beneath them, the Phillies that day gained a common enemy, someone they had to prove wrong, and it was Dallas Green.
You know, Dallas was a foe for us. We'll show him. We'll show him how good we are. Thanks for listening to episode two of Phillies Throwbacks, presented by Toyota. In the next episode, the Phillies head down the stretch run of the 1980 regular season, putting their egos aside to play their best baseball at the most important time. But it wasn't as easy as it sounds. Another tongue lashing from a prominent figure and a torrid six-game stretch helped the Phillies flip the script and compete for the division in the season's final days. You win two out of three, you go to the playoffs. You lose, you're going home. And the disappointment continues. So they knew what they had to do, and they were ready to do it. This story was written and edited by Graham Foley. Additional editing and production assistance by David Katai.